Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Pryor. And I'm Stephen Higgins. And welcome to another Chock-A-Block episode of Apocryphal Australia. Now, before we get started, Stephen, have you had a look at the mailbag? I have indeed, Michael, and it was Chockers. Unfortunately, or fortunately, it was mainly um, along the lines of, wow, you guys are doing a great job, great show, keep it up, please give us more. But not a lot in terms of, could you tell us more about this particular person or I've got some more facts about some other place that we've already covered. Okay, so no helpful and useful correspondence. No, no. And and, and funnily enough, not a real lot of checks and, and money orders and, and jewellery and the like either, which we did mentioned last show people people come on listen listen make sure you get that stuff rolling in and well by preference it just send us some useful stuff or things you'd like us to follow up on apocryphal australia but today Stephen, you're first up what have you got in the way of stories for us stories is, is right this is actually two stories in one so hopefully listeners will will indulge me here because this is actually quite a long piece it deals with the great kimbo rail disaster of 1952 for those of you who, who don't know it kimbo is a small unassuming town in the north south new south wales highlands and just let me set set the scene michael for one of australia's most harrowing disasters it all started on a cool afternoon on the 5th of april 1952 Ewan Twigelt, the station master of Kimbo Station and modern post-impressionist, stood waiting the arrival of the 1654 from Dweeg. Ewan knew the driver, Ron Jones-Jones, and it was unusual for Jones-Jones to be late. Ewan flicked open his watch in that time-honoured way of station masters and then glanced at the station clock to get the time. 1655. Jones-Jones was very late indeed. It should be pointed out that the the fact that Jones-Jones was very late did not constitute the Great Kimbo Rail Disaster of 1952, as bad as Ewan thought it was. Far worse things were in store for the the sleepy township of Kimbo. The law-abiding citizens of Kimbo were a law-abiding lot. They kept reasonable hours, they didn't drink much, they went to church on a Sunday and generally kept the peace. By contrast, the non-law-abiding citizens were a bunch of 'er ne'er-do-wells and criminals. And it was this rougher, less ruly lot of citizens that were to be merely one of the myriad forces caught up in what would become, in time, for them, the Great Railway Disaster. Unbeknownst to Ewan and the unruly elements of Kimbo, the 1654 from Dweek was at that minute just shunting out of the sidings at Deplorable, an even smaller town just outside of Reason. Ron Jones was at the helm, as he liked to call it, and it seemed just like any other run. The birds twittered, the sun shone, God was in his heaven and all was well with the world. Or was it? Kimbo was, like many other small towns of the time, built largely of wood. This was old seasoned wood that had seen the best and worst that nature could throw at it. And it was therefore a bit old and worn and threadbare and very combustible. Jones Jones, the hyphenated engine driver that Ewan was depending upon, 
had argued for hours against the transport of so many highly inflammable, so much highly inflammable liquid through the populated areas. Management told him he could pack his bags if he didn't have the nerve. They could always get Mousy Arnold to drive the death train for them, they said. Jones Jones knew Mousy Arnold really well. He was a drifter, a no-good dirty city driver who was for sale to the highest bidder and damned the consequences. Jones Jones took a long swig from his whiskey bottle and then with a determined look in his eye, he spat out the whiskey, smiled ruefully at the bottle and said, you nearly got me then, you old bitch. Sorry for the language. He threw open the door to the room mark management. I'll drive you dirty work, you bastards. Sorry, language again. He said, just don't expect me to like it as well. With that, he climbed aboard the train to hell. He released the brakes and inched forward, smiling all the while. By the time he'd reached Abandoned Hope, a small town near the end of the line, he'd gathered so much speed that he could not stop for his brake. He was working on the principle that if highly dangerous goods were being transported through small towns, then it was best done quickly. With that thought in mind, Ron Joan Jones and his cargo of doom hurtled towards Brout Bridge, just outside Kimbo. Even those with only a smattering of Australian history will know the story of Brout Bridge. For those of you with less than that smattering, perhaps it is fitting here that we have a look at the other part of this tragedy, and that is the actual genesis of this disaster, the Brout Bridge itself. Well, Stephen, you haven't just found facts about this lost episode in Australian history. You've recreated it. I felt like I was there for a moment. Well... So did the people who were there, Michael. That is a real existential statement there, and I'm going to think about it long and hard while you take us into this next section of your research. Indeed I will. Now, as with many a human tragedy, there's no one event that can be pointed to with any great certainty and identified as the single cause of the Kimbo Broutbridge disaster, although the birth of Henry Brout is a good place to start. Brout was considered Australia's premier premier of New South Wales, but only by Henry Brout. The fact that he's totally unknown is due to the fact that he only served as the New South Wales Premier for a period of 38 minutes while the incumbent was mislaid. This crucial 38-minute premiership occurred in 1948. Brout was an ambitious man. He wanted to make his mark on history's pages. This notion, and the term blotting one's copybook, pretty well sum up the achievements of Henry Brout. As he sat at his desk, enjoying the trappings of power, Brout glanced at the proposal for a new bridge over the river Tippy, just outside of Kimbo. Realising that this was his opportunity to make a name for himself, Brout signed the contracts contained within the proposal for the bridge, with the proviso that the bridge be named after him and that it be markedly different from any other bridge in the world. And it is this tiny contractual detail that, that led to the disaster of the Great Kimbo Rail disaster. The builders who had submitted the proposal were delighted. They considered themselves creative artists rather than just stuffy old bridge builders, and they had never before been given such artistic licence. The resulting construction was indeed impressive. It won awards from various bodies, but most of these had nothing to do with bridges, construction techniques, safety or usability. The fact that the builders had fulfilled their commission was beyond doubt. The bridge was indeed unlike any other in the world, in that it did not reach the other side of the river. Jimmy Wicklick, 
spokesman for the construction company, responded to criticism of the bridge by countering that they, quote, had not become slavish adherents to the outdated old-fashioned notions of what made a bridge a bridge. And he went on to say that the bridge did cross some of the river, um, and in that regard it fills the function of a bridge that most people subscribe to. The fact that not all of the bridge crossed the river did not invalidate the bit of the bridge that did cross the river. When it was pointed out that it was the bit of the bridge that didn't cross the river that was concerned, Wycliffe mumbled something about Philistines and walked away. Henry Brout cut the ribbon on the, on the bridge at 4.30 on the afternoon of 5th of April 1952. In an inept attempt at a cover-up, Brout had failed to point out the unique nature of the bridge to the rail authorities. The inevitable tragic loss of life and destruction of property haunted Brout for the rest of his life, except for the bits where he went on to be a successful member of the judiciary. Now, that's a tragedy, a disaster all wrapped up in one. And, of course, at those times, the train disasters, there were a number of them around. But this one, again, hidden, covered up, unknown. And, and I think that can be mainly point uh, put down to the fact that government was involved, uh, um, railway authorities were involved, people were going to be embarrassed by the results of any inquiry. Thank goodness that sort of stuff doesn't happen today. Well, absolutely, yes, of course. Now, Michael, we both know what a fascinating country we're living in at the moment, and I understand you've uncovered yet another, even more fascinating aspect of it. Indeed, Stephen. I'm taking a bit of a cue from last episode where you really opened the box of geographic wonders. And this time I'm looking at a special sort of wonder called Lake Nina. So here we go. Lake Nina, Tasmania, is a notable lake within a lake within a lake within a lake and is located some 120 kilometres northwest of Hobart. Lake Nina is situated on an unnamed island in the middle of Lake Spoon, which itself is situated on Reedy Island, which is in Lake Dampier. Those who claim it's actually a tiny puddle on a patch of mud in a small pool on a bit of dirt in a middling-sized pond on an island in a small lake on a larger island in a large lake, well, they're, they're just notable wet blankets and no fun anymore. Lake Nina is approximately 500 square metres in area, but remarkably is home to three unique species of animals and plants. First of all, it's the Lake Nina soft-headed turtle, and it's a small chelonian only 10 centimetres long. It has a flexible neck and the unusual habit of floating on its back for long periods of time. It also has uncanny powers of deduction. Various Lake Nina soft-headed turtles have been consulted by the Tasmanian Police Department over difficult cases since 1923. Their help has been credited with solving the Blair baby kidnapping of 1929 and the Twin Towers murders of 1933, and also crucial in uncovering the person who was responsible for forging several of Louis Bouvelot's paintings, and that after masterminding an elaborate sting operation. The Lake Nina greyfish is a member of the perch family and grows up to 20 centimetres in length and 300 grams in weight. It is renowned as a fighter, often pulling itself up the angler's line to engage the fishermen in hand-to-hand combat. Despite its small size, it has robust fins and can dish out a nasty buffet to the side of the head. 
Experienced greyfish anglers, however, know that the fish is terrified of ducks and so have taken to wearing duck masks when fishing for this pugnacious piscine. So you can actually see these anglers around the shores of Lake Nina in their duck masks at the right season. Quite a sight. The third unique species is Sea Lake Nina reed, and this is a unique semi-aquatic grass growing along most of the shore of this tiny lake. When carefully harvested and fresh roasted, it's said to exhibit a chockberry sort of flavour, as well as having a strange hallucinogenic effect in some individuals. Those affected universally report that, while under the influence of Lake Nina reed, everyone looks and sounds like the Lake Walt Disney. Even those who have never seen the famous animator and theme park pioneer describe a person who could only be the creator of Mickey Mouse. Lake Nina is a protected area and currently considered to be in an extremely vulnerable state. Dumping of toxic chemicals has been almost completely banned, except with good reason, and using gelignite for fishing has been confined exclusively to daylight hours. Lake Nina, one of our natural wonders. Why, why hasn't Lake Nina turned up in the David Attenborough special yet? I understand he is negotiating with Lake Nina's agent, who is currently on the run for counterfeiting. And Stephen, it's over to you for another story of a famous person from Australia's past. Yes, thank you, Michael. And a bit of an unusual one this time. We don't often get people um, who are involved in administrative tasks who attract our attention. But uh, Reggie Node, or Reginald Node, is one such person. Reggie Node was born in Tarmuchley, a small town on the outskirts of Printerville, Queensland, in 1928. He was apparently a child for some years before becoming what is loosely described as a teenager in 1941. From that point on, there was no holding him back. Note first came to fame in the printing industry, where he revolutionised the archaic practice of using paper and or paper-based products almost exclusively. Note began using tin sheeting as his primary print face surface, rightly claiming that it lasted longer, particularly in the wet and humid climes of Queensland. After many lacerations and a few hernias, Node suddenly made an abrupt change in career path in that he actually acquired one. The print industry was too confined for a man of Node's talents and he quickly settled in the Queensland public service like a fish in a tree. Never one to follow the traditional approach to round holes and square pegs, Node soon found himself ostracised by every element of the public service, including the cleaners. Not even the politicians could stand him. The reason for this treatment was twofold. He was a complete and utter fool. This would not normally be sufficient to make him stand out in public service crowd, but Node had the added dimension of being a bit nasty with it as well. Not only did he file reports on everyone he knew within the service, but he did so in triplicate. Again, not normally an activity likely to draw more than the usual attention to oneself, apart from the fact that Node still harboured hopes for his Metallic Memo series of office products. The Queensland public sector ground to a halt under the literal weight of Node's memos, letters, press releases and minutes, all printed on sheet metal. 
It became apparent to the investigating authorities that Node had infiltrated the public service simply to promote his own line of hard office supplies. He was dismissed from his position and soon found himself unemployed and penniless. And it was while living rough on the streets that he came up with his next brilliant idea, soft bricks. He'd spent many a night lying on hard surfaces and the notion of soft building supplies appealed. He immediately scraped together all of his resources, which at the time was a small bag containing a sandwich of indeterminate age, and set about launching his comeback. The first line of soft bricks was employed in the making of the Carlson Hotel in Sydney, later known as the Squishy Carlson. This building also employed to note other innovations, pliable steel and floppy concrete. The actual builders of the project, AAAA Honest John's Builders and Receivers of Summons, Proprietary Limited, were found to have a slightly less than successful record in building structures that remained standing. In their defence, John Hunden of Honest John's explained that they were attracted to Node's building supplies out of a sense of community service, reasoning that when the thing fell down, it wouldn't hurt so much. Node retired from the building industry shortly afterwards, and he saw out his twilight years at the Bendy Home for the Aged in Bondi, New South Wales. Well, Stephen, Reggie Node, man among men, ambitious but incompetent. Absolutely. One of a kind. And I understand you have a, another interesting person for us to look at, Michael. Oh, yeah. Plucked from the past, can we say. This is Clifford Menelaus, 1897 to 1921. Clifford Menelaus was the youngest son of Archie and Lois Menelaus, well-known Melbourne academics and ne'er-do-wells. His three older brothers all joined the military, two eventually captaining destroyers in World War II and one being cashiered for reckless buffoonery while starring in an army pantomime in 1935. Young Clifford was something of a prodigy, speaking four languages by the age of ten. By eleven, he had mastered insufferability. By twelve, he had perfected the sneering put-down. By fourteen, he was a practised cynic. At the age of 15, he matriculated and decided to attend the University of Melbourne as, in his own words, he had nothing better to do. After two simultaneous degrees and four years of insulting the academic staff, Clifford Menelaus sauntered into the offices of the Stentor, one of the great forgotten Melbourne newspapers of the day. He announced that he was going to be the journal's arts critic. Such was his air of confidence, self-importance and malice he was given the job on the spot. The erstwhile holder of the position, one-time principal trombonist of the Berlin Philharmonic Neville Kratzmeier, was brusquely ordered from the building and told never to return. And Stephen, this is where I get to do this. <laughs> ah, this is an addition to our <laughs> apocryphal Australia. I've got my hand on sound effect. And listeners, you can be sure we'll be doing them to death. And look, just to get it again, Neville Kratzmeyer, who was one-time principal trombonist of the Berlin Philharmonic, was booted from the offices of the Stentor. <laughs> Our apocryphal Australia bringing you the wonders of the theatre of the air. 
Meanwhile, back with Clifford Menelaus. Within months, he'd managed to offend nearly everyone in the Melbourne artistic community. Ballet performances were roasted. Musical concerts poo-pooed. Art exhibitions were derided. Dozens of novels were disparaged one after the other. When it was pointed out to Menelaus that he hadn't attacked a sign writer on a nearby building, he quickly sprinted down the stairs and spent the next hour haranguing the man from the street below. In his first year at the paper, he famously panned Melba. Can't sing, can't dance. Steel Rudd, author of On Our Selection, about as funny as a one-legged gravedigger. And Norman Lindsay of Magic Pudding fame. No talent to speak of. No book, exhibition or performance was safe from his pen. He veered from scathing to vitriolic, with everything between. He described Roy Reen as soporific. Max Meldrum's work as a series of mistakes, and visiting tenor John McCormack as laughably inept. In the period from 1916 to 1920, Clifford Menelaus was both hated and feared by all those involved with the arts. When it was revealed that he rarely attended the performances he criticised, he was unrepentant. Why punish myself? he retorted. In 1921, Clifford Menelaus was found dead in a laneway at the rear of the Stentor offices. A coroner's report surmised that he'd been beaten about the head with several heavy flat objects, possibly books. Then he'd been strangled with a pair of ballet leg warmers, crushed beneath a large phonograph and stabbed with a number of paintbrushes. The official verdict was that the wounds were self-inflicted. Oh dear, a very sad and instructive tale, Michael. Oh, the life of a critic is a fraught one, as it uh, has turned out with Clifford. Hmm. It's a shame he didn't live to see the likes of Twitter and the positive online banter that greets many an artistic pursuit these days. Oh, can I just say he would have revelled in it. He would have loved both the attention and the opportunities provided. Now then, you have a particularly interesting event to describe to us, Michael. Yeah, I'd like to slip this one in, this uh, last one for this episode... We do tend to concentrate on people and places and events. This one falls into the latter category, and this is what we call the True Games of 1932. The True Games were the brainchild of Patricia Yelland, a prominent Perth salt miner and writer. It was her contention that sports and games were important in creating well-rounded individuals. To this extent, she felt traditional athletic carnivals were limiting rather than liberating because of the nature of the events. With a committee formed from several wealthy but equally eccentric friends, she launched the True Games. The True Games were held on the Yelland family property near Sunnybrook, WA, among the extensive gardens and recreation areas. It was here that many sports once considered less than mainstream had their day in the sun. The first day of the game saw hundreds of competitors and spectators flocking to the venue. A spontaneous opening ceremony saw dozens of local schoolchildren dipped in coloured paint and herded into intricate patterns that made no sense whatsoever to those watching. Judith Slimerton read the athlete's oath. To win or lose, to compete or not, at least do it in style. Then it was into the fray. Newspaper reports of the first day noted that the cross-country hammer throw was particularly fiercely contested before Arthur Fidley, New South Wales, 
was eventually successful. Indoor clay pigeon shooting was equally competitive, with a draw declared between Anthony Asquith, Tasmania, and Marjorie Saunders, South Australia. The Sino-Scottish wrestling, however, was abandoned when Wallace Lee, Victoria, refused to wear a kilt. The second day was highlighted by the swimming. The mixed dog paddle was a crowd favourite, but the swimming underwater race was abandoned after several contestants had to be rescued unconscious. Some of the loudest cheers of the day came in the open belly whacker, which is won by 17 stone Lionel Wanthrop, Victoria, with a dive that rendered the crowd silent with awe. The third and final day saw a number of controversies. Tippy Standish, New South Wales, was accused of using ball bearings in the full contact marbles heats and was eventually disqualified. Milton Boothy, Queensland, was knocked out in a behind-the-play incident in the 800 metres tiddlywinks. Francis Meath, Luigi Vitelli and Olaf Gunderson all went missing in action in the mixed postprandial ramble. But the most infamous incident occurred in the Blue Ribbon event, the 100 metres in clown shoes. The hot favourites for this event were Big Bob Turkle, New South Wales, and Elvie Melkin, Victoria, bitter rivals over many years in circus-related sprint events. Both had trained hard, but both had been plagued with injuries before the Games. Turkle with a strained back from overcrowding in the little clown car, and Melkin with a calf muscle tear after a pratfall gone wrong. But in the end, neither of the favourites won. They were pipped at the post by an unknown, Morris Everly, WA, and this is where the controversy began. Both Turkle and Melkin accused Everly of not being a clown at all, thus ineligible to compete in the event. They pointed to his lack of white makeup, red nose and frizzy hair, let alone the complete absence of baggy pants. Eversley responded by noting that the event was the 100 metres in clown shoes, not 100 metres for clowns in shoes. And then it was on for young and old. After the pie fight, the judges declared they couldn't care less and went off for a gin and tonic, signalling the end of the true games in 1932. Sadly, they were never repeated. Could it be time for a true games revival? Well, yes, indeed. But the, the thought occurred to me that I, I think that there has been a revival of sorts. I'm, I'm reminded of those gladiatorial reality TV shows that uh, that graced our screens through the, the 90s and into the early 2000s and indeed still go today. I do recall what you're talking about. I had blanked them out of my memory, but, uh, <laughs> but it's all coming back in, the, in their horror. I do believe, though, that the spirit of the true games was something more benign, something less competitive in a way, and I think it gave an opportunity to do things without having to get your head on the TV. True. And and the true games also had this, this air of... Oh, what's the word? Ridiculousness or something? I don't know. Arrant ridiculousness is what you're after there. And there was no shame at all in being ridiculous. That could well have been the motto of the True Games. Be ridiculous and do it proudly. Stephen, in our next episodes coming up, all sorts of goodies I think we can hold out for our listeners. For instance, I'm looking into some ghost stories. I've got some ghost stories about urban ghosts worth looking into in our larger cities. And some of these ghosts are particularly frightening. Some of them are particularly ridiculous and I'm tossing up which way to go. You got anything on the boil? 
I've got a, a few people that I'm, I'm still researching at the moment that are, that are showing a great deal of promise. So I'm sort of, I'd like to keep my cards close to my chest on those ones. However, I, I have been looking at something. I, I just wanted to get into something a bit more contemporary. So I've been looking at, at Sunbury, the, uh, the music festival, and having a look at that, how that actually came into being because it's, a, it's not a well-known story. A lot of people remember the rock acts and the, the mud and the rain and the noise and the loudness and, and, and the fun of Sunbury, but there's, there are other stories there that, that people just don't know about. So I'm having a, a, a deep look at that. Oh, Stephen, look, you're opening a door here, I can see. Really, an event like Sunbury has to have dozens, hundreds of untold stories, and you are the person to bring them to light. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, it should be a great deal of fun. And that's all we've got time for on Apocryphal Australia. We'll be looking forward to talking to you next time where you will learn all sorts of wonderful stuff about this wonderful country of ours. Until then, I'm Michael Pryor. And I'm Stephen Higgins. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were, and that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side, and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So, until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay? Okay.